I played hockey in high school, first on the JV team and then on varsity. My last year on the JV team, which was my sophomore year, we had a really bad coach, or at least I thought he was a bad coach. Not because he didn't understand the game or know how to coach in a technical sense, but because psychologically he created a really bad atmosphere and dynamic within the team. What he did was to continually praise the good players while criticizing the weaker players. He made the good players feel like he was their best friend. He talked them up in front of everyone else. By contrast, he would openly berate the players who weren't as good, making them feel foolish in front of their teammates. And by and large, the team played very poorly. My junior year, I moved up to varsity. The varsity coach was very different, at least in terms of his ability to motivate players and create a healthy feeling within the team, because he did the exact opposite of what the JV coach had done. This coach would actually criticize the good players in front of the rest of us, even if their mistakes were comparatively small next to their lesser teammates. And he didn't go out of his way to praise them either, even if they played particularly well. In contrast, for the more mediocre players, if they did something good, he would be sure to pump them up for it in front of the rest. Their mistakes he brought up to them in private, with plenty of encouragement, that they were on the verge of really stepping up and having a good game. His attitude was, you'll do better the next time, I believe in you. And the team played much better, even against more competitive high schools. There is a motto that the Jesuits use to express the ethos of a Jesuit education, the cura personalis, meaning the care of the whole person. It's the motto of many Jesuit colleges and universities, including nearby Georgetown. The phrase was originally coined by the Jesuits to express the idea that a Jesuit superior has to cultivate each priest or brother in the community by developing him according to his unique gifts, challenges, needs, and possibilities. In other words, the superior has to adapt his method of governing to the character of those he is ruling. It's an inversion of the world's values in which the weaker adapt themselves to the preferences of the more powerful. Yet it fits with the words of our Savior. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just so, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pope Francis, himself a Jesuit, is often getting at this concept in many of the statements that he's made. He's continually exhorting pastors and others who have the care of souls within the Christian community to not take a one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with people's sins and problems. As the Pope said in his latest encyclical, Amoris Laetitiae, and here he is quoting John Paul II, pastors must know that for the sake of truth, they are obliged to exercise careful discernment of situations. Now, there are some who wish to exploit the apparent elasticity contained in this principle to justify actions that contravene the truths of the faith. Of the faith. 
And of course, that's misguided. But properly understood, the principle itself is valid because the heart of pastoral care is to apply the truths of the faith to the concrete circumstances of the individual person. St. Thomas Aquinas identified prudence as one of the four cardinal or natural virtues. Following Aristotle, Thomas defined prudence as right reason in action. In other words, prudence makes determinations of how to apply more general principles to specific situations. As the Catechism says, prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. What my former hockey coach, the good one, understood is that the way to get the best out of your players is to recognize their strengths and weaknesses. Now, in general, the weakness of the good players is that they are often so good that they become arrogant. They don't become team players. Instead of making passes, they hog the puck. Instead of making plays, they try to go for impossible individual efforts. They may still be playing good compared to the rest, but they aren't helping the team as much as they could. By criticizing them and not praising them too much, the coach kept them humble. As a result, they became more focused on contributing to the team rather than their own glory. Similarly, one of the things that makes a weak player even worse is when they lack confidence in what they're doing, especially when they feel like they're going to get chewed out every time they make a bad play. So this coach discovered that the single best thing to give these players in the short term was public praise and only very gentle private admonition because when they felt more confident about themselves, they played better. Even before the Jesuits, back in the year 590, Pope St. Gregory the Great outlined essentially this approach in his magnificent work, The Rule of Pastoral Care. It's written to pastors, but it's good reading for anyone in any state of life who has the care, spiritual or otherwise, of another person, whether parents, teachers, bosses, or leaders of any sort. The heart of St. Gregory's rule is that the circumstances or temperament of the person you are dealing with will dictate a different pastoral approach. Our faith teaches us about the incommensurable dignity of the human person. Thus, St. Gregory argues, pastoral methods have to be keyed to what works best for each individual, whether they are rich or poor, proud or lowly, smart or dumb. We see this reflected especially in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel. Just before the passage we read today, Luke relates the story of how Jesus healed the Roman centurion's servant who was dying. The centurion sent word to Jesus that his servant needed to be healed, and this was itself notable, because why would a Roman centurion even care about a lowly servant? So much so that he would lower himself to supplicate from a Jewish carpenter turned preacher. It shows that the centurion was already the kind of leader Jesus spoke of who would put the good of those in his charge ahead of his own dignity. And when Jesus said he would come to heal the servant, the centurion responded in words that we paraphrase every time at Mass, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And Jesus responds, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And at that moment, the servant was healed. 
Jesus marveled because this man of importance by the world's standards, a Roman centurion, had the humility to acknowledge his insignificance before the Lord. The greatest danger for someone like the centurion is pride. Yet in seeking to heal his servant and submitting himself to Christ, he showed his genuine humility. Likewise, in the gospel passage from today, Jesus raises a widow's son from the grave. In those days, a widow who lost her only son was essentially doomed. If she had neither a husband nor a son, she had no one who could provide for her. Here was a woman who had lost hope. Unlike the centurion, she might not even have known who Jesus was up to that point. Yet it was Jesus who recognized her circumstances and came to her aid without her or anyone even asking. Jesus rescued her from her hopelessness. Our faith celebrates the inversion of worldly values and stations. If you pray evening prayer, you know Mary's Magnificat. The Lord has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God meets each person where they are. He gives us not what we want, but what we need, which is often the opposite of what everyone, perhaps even including ourselves, thinks we deserve. That's why every prayer should be offered in the spirit of Christ suffering in the garden. But not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Christ healed the centurion slave because he showed humility when, by the world's standards, he need not be humble, whereas the widow herself was already humbled. What she needed was hope. As we see in so many places in the Bible, for example, the way Jesus responds to the rich young man or the woman at the well, Jesus responds to each person according to their unique needs and circumstances. So we should strive to do as Christians, as well as as the church. This is what sometimes confuses people about Christianity. The church speaks different truths in different ways to different persons in different circumstances. Sometimes the church speaks about God's love and mercy, other times about his judgments and the fires of hell. The deeper truth is that the church is trying to offer everyone the cura personalis, She's trying to give the specific pastoral medicine that each person needs in order to get themselves to heaven. Because of this, some people perhaps think that Christianity is incoherent. Yet Jesus anticipated this objection as well. As he said at the end of Luke 7, Then to what shall I compare this generation of people? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. We played a flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating food nor drinking wine, and you said, he is possessed by a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said, look, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.